0: We're in our series that we're calling Remarkable. What we're doing is we're just taking sermons out of the book of Mark and uh, things that Jesus said and did and stories that come from the life and ministry of Jesus. And uh, we've been really excited to do this. It's been really great. And this is gonna take us all the way up to Easter, to Easter Sunday, where we will actually, uh, obviously talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, I'm really enjoying it. I'm studying Mark uh, this month in ways that I haven't studied it in the past, uh, a little deeper. And so it's been really encouraging and exciting for me. And I hope you're uh, challenged and encouraged by it as well. So that being said, I'm going to read my text verse out of Mark. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we uh, like to do here in honor of reading God's word together. Uh, Mark 11, uh, verses 12 to 24, and then I'm going to jump down to verses 20 to 25. So it's kind of a long text, but stay with me. Starting in verse 12, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. Now I'm gonna skip down to verse 20 when they were coming back a couple days later through that same area. It says in the morning they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Beautiful passage of scripture, and the title of my message is straight from the words of Jesus, have faith in God. Can somebody say amen? Amen, Amen. let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word because your word is life, your word is truth, your word is what transforms us. So Lord, would you do your transforming work in each one of us today as we go through these next few moments together. And God, we pray for the kids department too as they're hearing the word over there as well, God. Do your work in their hearts, Lord. We know that these kids are not too young to know and understand your word and your love for them. So do a work there as well, Lord. Holy Spirit, have your way throughout this whole building for the rest of our time here, in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you, you can be seated. So I'm gonna to talk to you about faith today. And whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, you exercise faith in your life every day. In many, many, many ways. If you drive a car, you have faith in your brakes. And I know that because Southern people like to tail people. <laughs> so you have faith that if when that person gets mad at you and stops quick, your car's gonna to stop too. Um, I've never tailed someone. I'm, perfectly cordial and polite on the road, as my wife will attest to. Uh, she'll actually call me a liar because that's not always true, but I do my best. Uh, you have faith in uh, all kinds of things in your life. You have faith in the food that you eat, that it's gonna not make you sick, uh, that you know the grocery store or the restaurant took care of it and, and that it's uh, worthwhile to eat. You have faith in the locks on your house, that they're gonna keep people out that shouldn't be there. You're gonna have faith in the power company, that as long as you pay your bill, they're gonna keep sending power to your house so that your lights will work and things like that. You have faith in relationships, that when you give yourself to a relationship, whether friendship or family or or a marriage, that that other person is going to treat you well and receive you and that they're going to reciprocate and all those things. That all takes faith, believing that something is going to happen or is happening. But I'm not talking about that faith today. We talk about faith, I'm going back to my message title, it says, have faith in God. Having faith in God is a totally different thing than having faith in the natural things. You see, Jesus didn't have to tell us to have faith in the things of this world because that comes more naturally for us because we can see it every day. I've seen, I, I know how my brakes work in my car, so I know that if I push that pedal, that the car should stop as long as I'm servicing them, making sure I take care of them. But having faith in God is totally different because we don't really see God with our natural eyes. We see the effects of God, but we don't actually get to see him in ways that we can see things in the natural. That's why Jesus had to encourage us and tell us, Hey, have faith in God. Believe in God. It's worth it to believe in him. And most of us that are here in this room, and maybe listening online, you, you at least have an understanding of faith in God. You know that God has called us to have faith in him. In fact, you would, most of us, probably almost all of us in here would know that you cannot have salvation without faith in God. There is no salvation without faith. One of the best verses in all the Bible is out of Ephesians chapter two in verse eight, where Paul says very clearly, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the only way to salvation, is to believe in God. And we know enough to know that salvation comes by believing. Salvation comes by faith, that there's no other way to have salvation in our life. That's, that's a little more easy for us to understand. But what does faith look like beyond salvation? What does faith look like lived out in my life once I am saved, once I am a Christian and a follower of Jesus? How does that faith manifest in my life? What does it actually look like in my life? We know enough to know that the Bible says that you cannot please God without faith. Hebrews 11 tells us very clearly, without faith it is impossible to please God. So we know we have to have it. And so most of us would probably say, well then that's what I want. I wanna please God, so I want faith. But what does that look like in my life? How does that manifest in my life? How does faith look in my job? Does it look like me quitting my job and going back to school to get my master's? Does it look like me taking that job offer that's been given to me? Or does it look like rejecting that job offer and staying where I am? Because there's no Bible verse that tells me what to do with a job offer. So how does that faith look in my life? How does faith look in my life when it comes to relationships? Does it take faith to stay single or does it take faith to get married? For each individual life, there's no there's no written rule on how that looks. So every situation can be different depending on your lot in life and where you are in life. How does faith look when it comes to my finances? Does faith look like me spending my money or does faith look like me saving my money? That depends on probably a lot on how you're wired. If you're tight, faith probably looks like spending some money. And if you're a, save, if you're a spender, faith might look like not spending some money and saving some money. And what's good for one scenario may not be good for the next scenario. How does faith play out? When Jesus says, have faith in God, it sounds kind of ambiguous, doesn't it? What does that look like? Well, I believe in this passage that I read that he gives us some things that I think are some principles that are really good, some filters that we can kind of put over our life to see if we are living in such a way that we have faith in him. And I'm going to get to those in a moment. But I was even thinking as I was going through this, how do I know if if even what I'm hoping for is that faith or is it just hope and what's the difference? Now, that is something that is clear in the Word of God. In Hebrews, that same chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, it says that faith is being sure of what we hope for. So you have hope, which is kind of wanting something and desiring something, maybe even having a little expectation, but faith is going another level above hope saying that I really believe that it's mine. I really believe that it's either going to happen or it's already happened and I'm just waiting to see the fruit of it. So faith is taking hope to another level of actually believing that you're gonna have it. Uh, a very simple example, a little cheesy, but it works, is that when Joy and I were still just friends, and uh, I would got up the courage to actually talk to her and tell her about my never dying feelings for her, um, I finally did it at a, uh, in a church in, on a cold winter night in Albuquerque, New Mexico of all places. And uh, I hoped that she would respond in kind. I hoped that she felt the same way, and I even had a little bit of expectation because she kind of responded to my flirting, but I couldn't really tell. And so I got the nerve to go talk to her, but I sure didn't have faith because I was terrified. And obviously it worked out okay. And then when it finally got to the point where I was willing to propose, or wanted to propose, I should say not willing, uh, wanting to propose. I'm sorry, honey. When she finally talked me into proposing to her. No. Boy, that was a Freudian slip. Um, when I finally got the nerve to propose to her, I had a lot more than hope, I had faith. I believed that she was going to say yes. I really believed it with all my heart, partly because I knew I wore her down, but partly because I just, we, we talked about it, and I, I, I knew with strong confidence that she would say yes. So I hoped that she would respond well when I talked to her the first time, and I had faith that she was going to uh, respond well when I proposed to her, and man, it really worked out well for her, so thank God. Um, <laughs> I'm going off the rails here. Okay, so you see, I'm just trying to show you the difference a little bit between hope and faith. But where are we in our faith in God? Jesus didn't say to have, just to have hope in God. I think the Bible does talk about putting your hope in, in God too, but ultimately we are to have faith in him, to, to really expect and believe for him to be evident in our life and that there would be fruit in our life. And uh, I, was, I was reading um, the great evangelist from days past, D.L. Moody, uh, he would talk about faith and levels of faith. He did this quite often. And it's not like we could just boil down our faith to a couple different levels and, and um, completely quantify it. But it does help for the purpose of my message and for, this, uh, for just helping us to kind of think about where we're at in our faith. And he talked about three different levels of faith. And the first one was a struggling faith. And if your faith is in God is struggling, it's like you're in deep water and you're struggling not to drown. You know, your arms are kind of flailing, you're just working to keep your head above the surface of the water, and you're just barely hanging on in your faith. And then there's the next level, which would be a clinging faith, he called it, which is where you're basically hanging on to the side of the boat. You're fighting to hold on, the waves are coming, and you're just holding on to that boat, hoping that you can stay there and not let go and and maybe drown. And then thirdly, there's the resting faith, which is the faith that we would all want to have. It's where you're actually in the boat where you are safe and secure in your faith in Jesus. And the question for us today is, which one are you? Where are you at? What level of faith would you say you're at? For some of us, we probably say, well, it depends on the day of the week. Sunday morning, it's a little easier because I'm here with a bunch of my friends and just got done singing some really great songs and reminding my spirit about how great Jesus really is, so my faith's doing good right now, but how is it on Tuesday and Thursday at work and when things are difficult? where would you say your level of faith is? I think we all want to be in the boat where we're at that place of incredible trust in God. But if we're honest with ourselves, we might not be there right now. But here's what I wanna make you aware of today. When I mentioned the third level of resting faith and you're in the boat, most of us, if you're like me, you probably envision that if you go into your mind and think about what that looks like, you envision yourself in this nice big boat and the water is perfectly calm and you're just resting in this faith, and the sun is shining, and it's 72 degrees, and you've got some sweet tea and and some good Zaxby's chicken or Chick-fil-A, whatever it is, and you're just enjoying life, and it's just so serene and wonderful. And can I tell you, though, that is not necessarily what resting faith looks like. In fact, more often than not, resting faith is not like that. More often than not, resting faith is in the boat, but the waves are crashing. The boat's rocking, and you're hanging on sometimes, but you're resting because rest when it comes to our faith is not a matter of our circumstances and everything going perfect. Rest in our faith is understanding who our faith is in. It's having rest in the middle of the storm like Jesus did when he was asleep in the bottom of the boat and the disciples are freaking out thinking they're gonna die. Jesus is asleep and the waves are crashing and they're all going crazy and Jesus is resting in the storm. And when we're talking about resting faith, that's usually what it is. It's the people that have resting faith are not the ones that have figured out how to make everything in life nice and smooth and to keep the water like glass where nothing ever goes wrong and the birds are chirping and it just couldn't be a more picturesque, beautiful day. Resting faith is being able to rest when you still have to hold on to the boat because you're trusting in God. You're not trusting in your circumstances and you're definitely not trusting in yourself. That's what resting faith looks like. It means being at peace when you don't get the results that you want. Can you be at peace when you don't get the results that you want in your life and in your faith? That's something we have to ask ourselves. And resting faith is about knowing your role. It's not about perfect circumstances, it's about knowing your role in the relationship of faith. In your, when, you, when Jesus says, have faith in God, what is my role in having faith in God? My role is to trust him and to walk in obedience. That's my role. And if I'm doing that, I can absolutely rest in my faith, no matter what is going on around me. It doesn't mean you don't have bad days and you don't have times where you're upset or sad or crying or or angry or feeling down or doubt or having all these other things that come along, but the overriding theme of your life is that you are resting in your faith because you are trusting in God and you are walking in obedience to him. That's where resting faith comes in our life. And Jesus gives us some principles in this passage to kind of help answer some of our questions about our faith and what it looks like to have faith in God. You know, Peter said when they were coming back through and Peter said, look, Lord, the tree is withered. He was so impressed that Jesus just spoke to it and it totally died within a matter of a couple days. And Jesus, instead of using this opportunity to brag about how powerful he is and how he's Lord over the whole earth, he uses the opportunity to teach them something. He's teaching them what it looks like to have faith you see, some people would say that, well, Jesus lost his temper because he wanted to go and figs because he was hungry and the tree didn't have it, so he took out his frustration on the tree. It's not what he was doing at all. He was teaching them. He was teaching, if he, it, he wouldn't have said, have faith in God if he was reacting because he was frustrated about the tree having leaves but no fruit. He was teaching them, and exactly what he's doing for us in this passage is he's teaching us. So I want to give you a few principles, a few filters that I think will help us today and challenge us. And the first one is that faith has fruit, not just leaves. Faith has fruit, not just leaves. So if you were, if you were listening when I read my text, the fig tree, that story is, is, let me give you a little bit of context. So Jesus is in Jerusalem, it's the Passion Week, it's the last week of his earthly life. And so it's, it was probably around, it was in April sometime, the same time that we celebrate Easter. And uh, in April, fig trees typically don't produce a lot of fruit. Uh, a fig tree usually produces in the fall. But it's not uncommon or unheard of for a fig tree to produce fruit in other times of the year. And the way you can know that a fig tree has fruit is if it has leaves. Because a fig tree is different than most other trees in that if a, a fig tree produces the fruit before the leaves bloom in the tree. So if you see a, tree, a fig tree that has leaves, you can assume that that tree will have fruit because that's what a healthy fig tree would do. It would have the the fruit first and then the leaves. So that's why it says it was in leaf. So Jesus walked up to it, expected to get fruit, and there wasn't any on it. And so he spoke the curse over that tree and then we see what happened to the tree. Now this this is definitely also a metaphor for the judgment of God on the people of Israel because they had rejected God and they were ultimately rejecting Jesus. So there's no question that that's partly what this was about, but it was also very clearly about us as Christians. Because you see, we are the tree in this story. Not necessarily, We don't have to be the tree like this one, but we are a tree. In fact, Jesus refers to us as trees uh, in Matthew 7 as well. He says, every good tree bears good fruit. He's referring to Christians. He's referring to people that are followers of him. A good tree is going to bear good fruit. A Christian tree is going to bear Christian fruit. And so he's referring to us here. These figs represent the evidence of a Christian, the evidence of God's character in our life. If you're a follower of Jesus, there will be evidence of God's character. And conversely, if you are not bearing fruit, then you must not be a follower of Christ. Because Jesus says, if you are a good tree, you will bear good fruit. That's kind of a harsh word from Jesus. He's saying, listen, you can't Just say you're a Christian and and not have any fruit in your life. If you're a Christian and you are a, a good tree, you will bear the fruit that a Christian would bear. And so these figs represent the fruit. The leaves represent the facade. The leaves are the pretenders. They are visible from a distance. You can see the leaves even if you're not close to the tree. You can't see the fruit unless you're closer to the tree. That's why Jesus was walking up to it expecting to see fruit once he got closer. Leaves you can see from a distance and they give the appearance that there would also be fruit in the life of that tree. So the leaves are what drew Jesus to the tree, thinking he would have the benefits. And if you think about it in light of who we are as people, if if you are somebody that has leaves, you are giving the appearance of someone that has fruit. You're giving the appearance of a Christian tree for lack of a better term, but there's not necessarily any fruit on you. So how does this look in the life of you and me if we are just having leaves and not having fruit? It looks like you know how to do the Christian things. You know how to posture yourself in such a way that you look like a Christian, like maybe going to church. You can go to church because that looks like a Christian, right? But how many, I mean we all know you can go to church every Sunday for the rest of your life and be very far from God and have no fruit in your life at all. But if you are a Christian with fruit, you will typically go to church, and so you can flip the script and say, well, I go to church, so I must be a Christian, I must have fruit. And we give the appearance of fruit when there really isn't any there. Or we know how to talk like a Christian would talk. We know how to say, God bless you, you know, in and, and times other than when somebody sneezes. And we know how to pray out loud, you know. We know how to do the things. We, we know how to eat a lot of Chick-fil-A, things like that, you know. <laughs> that was a joke, but. But you know what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that we can do things that make us look like a follower of Jesus. That looks like we have fruit when the reality is it's nothing but a bunch of leaves. And when you see Jesus' response to just having leaves, he curses that tree. And if we are living a life where we're claiming to be something we're not, we get a harsh response from Jesus. In fact, it would have been better off for this tree if it didn't have anything on it. It's one thing to not have any fruit. It's another thing to fake it. And that tree was faking it because there's no reason there should have been leaves on it without any fruit. You see, Jesus, when he sees us broken and weak, his heart goes to us. He's drawn to us in our brokenness, in our inabilities, in our weakness. He's he's drawn to us. But when we're faking it, he's drawn to us, but then you see the judgment comes on this tree. And you see how Jesus responds to not having any fruit, but having the appearance of having fruit. You see these leaves, they represent the decent, loyal person. People that are loyal subjects of Jesus, that can look the part, but not really living the committed, devoted life. Now you might think, well, loyal, I mean, that's, that's faithful. No, loyal is a, an aspect of faithfulness, but it is not in and of itself faithfulness. You can be loyal and not be faithful. Loyal and decent is leaves, not fruit. It's a fallacy in the church to think that as long as I'm loyal to God, that me and God are good. It's not the same thing. In fact, I can, I can prove it pretty quickly just from using an illustration of marriage. For those of you in here that are married, You probably, on your wedding day, you probably promised to be faithful to your spouse. And there's an expectation that you would be faithful, right? And if you have been married for any length of time, and and you haven't stepped out and had an extramarital affair, you haven't been with anybody else since you've been married to this person, and if you ask the spouse, hey, has this person been loyal to you, they would say absolutely yes. They have not been with anybody else. They've been completely loyal to me but if that's all they've done in the marriage is just not be with somebody else, but haven't been there for you or haven't really been invested in the marriage and haven't been emotionally available and haven't done any part in the marriage other than not have relationships with anybody else, you wouldn't say that that person's faithful. They're loyal, but they're not faithful because loyalty is only a small part of faithfulness. So if we think that being loyal to God is enough, it's not. It doesn't produce fruit in our life to say, well, yeah, you know, if I'm, if I'm gonna talk about faith, it's definitely in Jesus. It's not in Buddha or Allah or any of these other things. It's, I'm loyal to Jesus. When we're gonna have conversations about religion, I'm on the Christian side. That's not enough to just be loyal to Jesus. He wants commitment, He wants devotion, He wants our trust. He wants us to walk in obedience to His words and His statutes. That's the call, uh, that's what faithfulness looks like. In fact, I can even show you a story in the Word. From Matthew 25, Jesus gives this parable of a, of a man that's going on a journey, and he brings three of his servants to him, and he, says, he gives them each some of his money. They're called talents. He gives the one five talents, gives the, another one two talents, and gives a third one one talent. And he doesn't even say that he gave them any instruction on what to do with it. Just gave it to them, and he went away for a long time. And when he comes back, he brings in these three servants, and he says, show me what you've done. Let's settle accounts. The first servant comes and he had five talents. He said, look, master, I've made this into 10 talents. And here you go. And he gives him the 10 talents. And the master's like, that's great. The second one did the same thing. He said, hey, I only had two, but I took these two and I doubled it. Here's four talents. And the master is very pleased. And most of you know this story, how it goes for the third guy. It doesn't go real well, does it? In fact, I'm going to read what the third guy did so that I make sure I don't miss anything. Out of Matthew 25 and verse 24. It says, then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. So this servant was loyal. He kept the money that the master gave him. He even took care of it. He made sure it was hidden so it wouldn't get stolen. And when he came back, when the, when the master came back, he was very honest about what he did. He said, man, I've, I've kept it. It's nice and clean. And here you go, here, here, it's back. He was very loyal. He was honest. He was thoughtful when it came to taking care of it. And what was the master's response to this servant? He didn't say, dude, I wish you'd have done a little more than that. That would have been nice. No, he said, you wicked, lazy servant. That's pretty harsh. The guy was loyal, wasn't he? He was loyal. He didn't try to hawk it for something else or run off and steal his money. But he was called wicked and lazy because of what he did with that money. Because he was just loyal and he wasn't actually faithful. But the other two, what did he say to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. The only difference between those servants and the other one was that they went to work, they did what was expected, and... It, it, even if they hadn't doubled the amount, if they would have done what, where they showed effort and had been faithful with what God had given them, he would have probably still said, well done. Because it wasn't about getting double his money back. It was about the heart of these servants. And because the other servant didn't trust him, he said, I don't trust you because you're a hard man. So he didn't trust, but he was still loyal to him. He said, you're wicked and lazy. And if you know the story, it does not end well for that servant. Because God is looking for faithfulness, not just Loyalty in life. Loyalty does not get you in the boat of resting faith. Loyalty might get you clinging on to the side of it, just hoping that things work out well for you, but it ain't gonna get you in the boat. Faithfulness is what gets you in the boat, to have resting faith in your life. And too often we are just content to take our faith on a little test drive and not really commit to it. The reality is we, don't, we miss out on so much of what living a life of faith looks like because we're not really committed. We're loyal, but we're not really all in. And I believe God's calling us and challenging us to be all in, to risk it all, church. Risk it all to live for Jesus. It's worth it. He is so worth it. He is so good. He is so amazing. It doesn't mean everything's gonna go perfect, but he is so worth your life and your commitment and your devotion and your faithfulness to him because he is always, always gonna be faithful to you. Praise God. All right, the next one, faith moves mountains. This is something I believe Jesus is showing us in this passage. He says in in, uh, the 23rd verse of my text verse, he says, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Praise God, what a verse, right? So great, so good, it's so good on a Sunday morning but on a Tuesday afternoon, that's pretty tough. Because many of us get tripped up on this verse. In fact, a lot of people use this verse to say, well, the, the, the Bible's not even true. You guys say every word of the Bible's true. There's nobody's prayed that a mountain would be moved out of the sea or moved from one place to another and had it actually happen. So it's obviously not true. And sometimes we don't know what to say to that. We think, uh, well, maybe it has. I don't know. I've never done it, but maybe somebody else has. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, I want to, just clarify this to maybe set some of us free in this and wondering, is the Bible really true? Jesus was not talking literally about moving a mountain into the sea. He was using hyperbole. Now, I know some of us have been out of school for a long time, and I kinda, we kind of remember that word, but if you don't remember it, go ask a youth. They'll tell you what it means because <laughs> they're still in English class. But hyperbole is literally just exaggerating something to make a point, point. and it is all through the word of God. It's everywhere in the word. And Jesus used it many, many times, just in the gospels, a small snippet of his life that we have documented, he used it a good bit. In fact, I can, I can tell you a few places. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, what? Gouge it out. He's not promoting self-mutilation. He's talking in extremes to help us understand how important it is that we have, we're careful with what we look at. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. He's not telling us to cut off limbs, church. Nobody's promoting that. That's not what he really meant. He was exaggerating to make a point that we have to be very, very mindful and careful about the things that we allow our feet to do or take us to and the things we do with our hands. He says if, if you're, you're trying to get a speck of dust out of your brother's eye but you got a plank in your eye, no one's got a two by four sticking out of their eye socket. It's hyperbole. He says if you're gonna come after me, you have to hate your mother and father and your brother and your sister and your wife and your children, he goes down this list of family members that you're supposed to hate if you're gonna follow Jesus. And if you don't, you're not worthy of me. He's not telling you to hate your family. Not even your in-laws, church. He wants you to love them, okay? I know some people write in their mother-in-law. That's not what he's doing. He's using exaggeration to talk to us about how much we are called to love him. That's what he's doing in this. And that's exactly what he's doing when he talks about moving a mountain into the sea, moving it out of your way. See, the difference between this hyperbole and some other ones he used that I mentioned, we want all those other ones to not, to not be true. Like, man, I hope he doesn't mean that I have to gouge my eyeball out. That would stink. We don't want that to be true, but we want the part of the mountain moving to be true because that would be really cool. But it doesn't change the fact that it's still an exaggeration to make a point. That he's exaggerating so we can understand what he's talking about here. In fact, that term he used to move this mountain, it was a very common phrase used in Jewish society back then. And it meant, it really just meant to get uh, obstacles out of your way in life. I and mean, we kind of use it today. Like, man, that's a mountain in, in my life. Or that's, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You know, we use those terms and we're not talking about them literally. It just means if there's a mountain in your path, it means there's an obstruction there. There's something, a difficulty in your way. And Jesus is saying these difficulties can be moved if we pray and we don't doubt and we believe in who he is and we have faith in God. He wants us to be able to move mountains in our life. And what he's really saying here, if I could just kind of rephrase it and sum it up, what he's saying is that faith is not seeing things as they are, it's seeing things as they could be. That's what faith that moves mountains is. It's like I'm not staring at the mountain just uh, in awe of how horrible and terrible it is and how insurmountable it is, but I'm seeing it as it isn't right now, where it's moved out of my way, where it's not obstructing me anymore. That's what faith in God is. He's saying and that faith can move those mountains in your life when you see things not as they are, but as they could be, where your the relational situation is, is a mountain. Your marriage, there's a mountain in your marriage that can't, you can't get out of the way. It's not focusing on that issue. It's It's focusing on the fact that Jesus can move that mountain and I can see greener pastures. And I can believe for it because of my God and how good he is and how his power is never ending. It is never failing. It is insurmountable. He is above all. He's greater than all. And when my faith is in him, he can do anything. Amen. Praise God. And it's trusting that God works in ways that we cannot see. He's working in ways that... We cannot see because, you know, when you're up close to a mountain, especially a big mountain, that's all you can see. You don't even know if there's anything on the other side of it. There could be another mountain because you just can't see it. All you can see is what you can see. Faith is seeing what you can't see, which sounds very counterintuitive, but that's exactly what it is. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that we walk by faith, not by sight. It's not by just what we see. Church, if you don't remember anything else I say today, remember this do not try to grow your faith with these eyes. Do not try to grow your faith with these. It does not work. There's too many things that we cannot see, that we cannot understand. And if you have to see it to believe it, you're gonna be that struggling, just trying to stay afloat person of faith. To be in the boat where you're resting, you're not seeing with these eyes. Now, there are times that God, he's so good, there's times you can see it. You see miracles that you can actually see it and know it and document it. And more often than not, it's things we can't see. It's trusting even when we don't understand. It's trusting that God is good and faithful even when what I'm looking at doesn't make sense. But I'm seeing with my eyes of faith, not with my physical eyes. It's believing and understanding that God is working in ways that I cannot see in my life. And to finish off this faith moving mountains, I wanna, I wanna make it very, very clear for us that we have to understand That the mountain is not always what you think it is. We would all agree that we're carnal, we're finite. We don't have a full understanding. And that too often, we determine what we think the mountain is, and that's what it is. And that's what we're praying for God to move. And it might not actually be that that's the mountain. The mountain might be something else. For example, let's say you have a, in your job, your job's terrible, you hate it. You don't like it, your boss is moody, doesn't like you, has it out for you. Culture at the workplace is not good, it's toxic. You work hard, but other people get promoted instead of you. I mean, just you know, it's just a bad situation. And what you see as the mountain is the job. God, if you could just move that mountain out of my way to the next job, so this road can be smooth and I can get over, everything can be fine. I just need you to move that mountain, God. And God's not moving that mountain. It's just sitting there. It looks like it's getting deeper roots every day. Maybe it's because. The job's not the mountain. Maybe the mountain is your attitude. Maybe the mountain is your perspective. Maybe the mountain is that God wants you there. He puts you there for a purpose. He wants you to be salt and light in that place. He has a plan for you. He wants you to reveal his glory in that place. Maybe there's somebody that works there that really needs to hear the love of Jesus, and you're too busy complaining about your job to even see it, that he's putting people in your life that need to hear about the gospel and are ready for it, and he's primed them, but you're not seeing it because you're too focused on the wrong mountain and you're not seeing what he's trying to do in your life. And if if you could change your perspective, all of a sudden the mountain shifts and it moves. And suddenly it's not that big a deal. Suddenly it's like, oh, thank you God that I have a job that I can pay my bills. Now sometimes it is the job, but we have to be very careful not to assume that because I feel a certain way, that's the mountain. Oh, I don't like this, so that's gotta be the mountain. You know what I find in my own life, more often than not, in any circumstance that I'm in, the mountain is usually my attitude. It's my perspective, it's my narcissism, it's my selfishness, it's my own way of wanting to do things, it's my own independence, it's my own rationale, it's my own mind, it's my carnal thoughts, thinking, well, God, it just makes sense, though, that you would move this job out of the way and give me another job, maybe at a, with a Christian boss that could really encourage me. Maybe that's not what he wants. Maybe he wants you to be the encouragement to other people. And I'm not saying it's always like that, but we can't just assume that I don't like this, so that's the mountain. Many times in your life, the mountain will be your own head, (laughs) your own desires, your own carnality in your life. I can tell you that our faith is not meant to just make the road smooth in front of us. It's not just that everything that we don't like would just be moved out of our way, that the the seas would just part, we'd be able to walk through on dry ground like the children of Israel did in the Red Sea. That's That's not what the goal of our faith is, is just to get our way and just to get God to do things for us. The goal of our faith should be biblically to glorify him. I know I say it a lot, but it, it's the, it is the root, it is the anchor of everything I do. It's the reason that I am in vocational ministry is because I believe with every ounce of my being that my life and your life is designed first and foremost for the glory of God. That there is nothing above it. There, in fact, church, there's nothing even close to it. It's not the glory of God. And then my happiness. It's the glory of God, and then my happiness, and then my money, and then everything else. It is so far above everything else in your life, and if you get that in your spirit, it changes everything. Suddenly, the horrible job is not that bad anymore because I'm like, God, if I can glorify you in this terrible job, then praise you. I'll worship you through it, I will trust you, I will rest in my faith, in the boat, even though it's, it's rocking and the storm is coming and everything around me looks bad, I'm gonna rest in my faith because my faith is not in my situation being perfect, my faith is in you. And I want you to be glorified in my life. And when we desire that more than anything, it's amazing how many of those mountains become molehills. It's amazing. It really, really is. And I'm not standing up here being sanctimonious, saying I've got it all figured out. I can complain in my spirit, in my heart, just as much as the next person. But man, I I always make sure I allow the Lord to convict me quickly. And he convicts me all the time, all the time. My attitude this week about some stuff has not been great and the Lord convicted me of it. And I was like, yesterday I was in my office repenting, preparing a sermon. I mean, I'm just being transparent with you guys. I don't have it perfectly figured out, but man, the biggest fear in my life is there where I would get to where I'm so calloused that I don't even care about the glory of God anymore. I just want my way. You're gonna want your way until you're dead. You're going to want it. It's going to be a determining factor in your life. You just can't have it led to have first place. It's got to be about his glory first. It's got to be about his his kingdom coming in your life and through your life. All right, very quickly, I'm going to give you the last one, that faith lives a life of forgiveness. I'm only going to take a minute on this. I know we talk about forgiveness a lot, but it's because it's in the Bible a lot. And Jesus talking about having faith in him, he takes this opportunity to tell us, hey, make sure you forgive." While he's talking to them about faith, how interesting is that? The verse is in Mark 11, 25, part of my text verse. It says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. When you hold anything against anyone, that covers everything, church. There's nothing that's not in anything, and there's no one that's not in anyone. It covers the whole gamut. If you have anything against them, he's basically telling us here, listen, if you hold unforgiveness, if you hold resentment in your heart, if you hold bitterness in your heart, it affects your faith. Negatively, by the way, not good. It negatively affects your faith. Faith and forgiveness are very, very closely linked. You cannot grow in your faith when you are living in unforgiveness because if you are living in unforgiveness towards someone, you don't understand the forgiveness that has been extended to you so you can't have the correct kind of faith in God because you don't get it. Because when you fully get it and you understand his forgiveness in your life and what you have been forgiven of and that you should have been the one on that cross but he decided to do it for you, when you understand that forgiveness, there's nothing anyone in this world could even do that could come close to what you did to him. There's nothing, nothing at all. And it doesn't mean we don't have unbelievable pain and hurts in this life. I know people get hurt all the time. I've been hurt plenty. All of us have been hurt. It doesn't minimize the hurt. What it does is it maximizes and glorifies and reveals the forgiveness of Jesus that gives us the power and the faith to forgive. It takes faith to forgive. That's what Jesus is saying here. I don't know how people that are not, that are far from God, people that don't have a relationship with Jesus, I don't know how they forgive some of the atrocities that you see in the news and all over this world. I don't know how they do it. Because if it wasn't for the grace of God, if it wasn't for the spirit of God, his power in me to forgive, I would be in a lot of bitterness towards some people in my life in the past. It takes faith to forgive. And we have to be willing to put in the hard work of forgiveness because forgiveness is hard work. That's why people don't like to do it. That's why they don't like to do it. It's hard. It's not fun to forgive. It's more fun to hold on to it, at least for a while. Because in our mind, if I hold on to it, then I'm getting you back. Even though nine times out of 10, that person doesn't even know I'm holding on to it and they don't really care. But I feel like, well, I'm getting even with them because I'm not forgiving them. My thoughts about them are ugly. So that makes me feel better about that myself. We don't say that out loud, but that's how we feel. That's what unforgiveness is. One more verse, and then I'll wrap it up. In Luke 17, Jesus talks to his disciples about forgiveness. Powerful verse. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Pretty simple, right? If he sins against you seven times a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Oh, okay, piece of cake. I'm sure, and the apostles said to the Lord, no problem, Jesus, that's the easy one. No, that's not what they said. What did they say? Increase our faith with an exclamation point. You're telling me I gotta do what? Seven times in a day? And you know seven doesn't mean seven. Seven's the number of completion. He's saying, infinite. If he, however many times he sins against you, forgive him. And the the disciples are like, oh my gosh, well then I need more faith. You gotta help me here, Lord, give me some faith. They got it, and we get that too, right? Because when I talk about forgiveness with you, you're probably looking at me thinking, I don't know. I mean, you'd be amazed how many times I have Christians tell me, I can't forgive. I just can't. I'm just not there, I can't do it. I'm not gonna do it. It's not even that they're struggling to forgive, they just decided they're not going to because the pain is just too great and I can't do it. Church, that is a scary, scary place to be because that is so contrary to the word. It is so contrary to what it looks like to walk this life of faith. I get struggling and where it can take time to really feel like you've released someone, but we have to put in the hard work of doing it if we really wanna see our faith grow, if we really wanna see God move mountains in our life, if we really wanna see live a life of resting peace and faith in our life, it's got to be that we are pursuing forgiveness. Don't believe the lie that a religious duty that we can do in our life is a substitute for forgiveness. Don't believe it. Put in the hard work of forgiveness, it is worth it. Praise God. Would you stand with me, please? I'd like to pray for us this morning or this afternoon. And I just want you to be honest with yourself for a moment, church. I just want you to take inventory and ask yourself, where am I at in my faith? Am I struggling, am I clinging, or am I resting? And does it it vary depending on the day? The goal should be to be resting. but That rest only comes by being committed, devoted, trusting him, and walking in obedience. And when we do that, I believe wholeheartedly that there will be fruit in our life, that he can move mountains, and that we can forgive, even when someone seems unforgivable. So let's, let's just pray, let's just, for a moment, just be, just contemplate where you are in your faith. Not out loud, just be honest with yourself. Sometimes that's the first thing, we just need to understand where we're at. Lord, I pray you would reveal our own hearts to ourselves in this moment. Reveal our hearts, maybe where we have been deceived, where we have lied to ourselves, or we believe the lies. We believe the lies that that if we have leaves, that that's just as good as fruit. As long as I can do the part, play the game, as long as I can have the posture of a disciple of Jesus, that's enough. Lord, expose those lies in our hearts. Help us, Lord. Help us to see it and know that there's no substitute for the fruit of God in our lives. We want to have a greater level of faith. You told us, Jesus, you said, have faith in God. Lord, we want to trust you in every circumstance in our life. That's our desire, Lord. In fact, we're begging you today, reveal it to our hearts where we have closed ourselves off and just been okay with the status quo, or been okay with kind of drudging along, been okay with just having some leaves. Lord, I pray you'd give us such a strong desire for the fruit of the fruit that comes from having faith in you, of trusting in you. Lord, we know trusting you is not easy because we can't see you everywhere and every day. But Lord, I pray that we would see you in our faith, through eyes of faith, that we would see the effects that you have in our life and in the lives of those in, in, in our life. And God, that we would walk this life trusting you. We get in the boat today, Lord. We want to rest in our faith. Lord, I know that doubt is a very real thing for us, that we don't have to go looking for doubt. Doubt finds us. But Lord, we're not going to let doubt have the final say in our faith. We're going to speak to that doubt and tell it to get out of the way. We're going to trust you. We're going to have risky faith and bold faith. I pray that for each and every person under the sound of my voice, that our faith, would grow, Lord, that you would take us to greater levels. And Lord, where we have decided in our heart or even just ignored growing in our faith, Lord, would you forgive us? Lord, we repent of wanting our own way, of, of always focusing on the mountain being what, how it affects us and not how it affects your kingdom. Lord, where we have been narcissistic, where we have been selfish, where we have had bad attitudes and been about ourselves, Lord, we repent, we're laying it down and we're walking away from it. And God, in this moment, we come back and we say, we want you to have your way in our life. We want you to be glorified above all things. Lord, we want your kingdom to come and your will to be done in our lives, that you would be glorified, that you would expand your kingdom through our lives. And God, that everything else in our life would have to fall in line under that, because there is nothing above you. There is nothing besides you. You are great and mighty and awesome in this place. Would you be awesome in our lives? We thank you for it today, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Praise God. Yes, praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Listen, if you're here today or you're listening online and you have not made a commitment to Jesus even for the salvation part of your life, you can't have salvation without faith in Jesus. It's about faith, it's about commitment, it's about trusting him and knowing that you need a savior in your life. God reveals our heart to us. He shows us that we are sinners, that we need salvation, that their only way to salvation is to receive the forgiveness of our sins that comes from him and what he did for us on the cross. So I would encourage you today, don't let another minute go by without giving your life to him. And if you got saved 20 years ago and you've kind of walked away and you're kind of of sure, recommit yourself to him. He's so worth it, church. He's so, so worth it. He's so wonderful. And that's why you're here today. I believe he brought you here today so he could show you that and reveal that to you.